Welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm Jonathan Carl, Chief White House Correspondent for ABC News. And I'm Rick Klein, Political Director at ABC News. All right, Rick, I am on the road here uh, headed to western Pennsylvania, Johnstown, PA to be exact, uh, home of the Martha Airport, one of America's great commercial airports. And also uh, where Donald Trump will be holding a rally uh, this this evening uh, at, at an arena. So we are... On the road, so if the connection is a little a uh, little fuzzy, you'll know what's going on. And John, you're you're headed out there because Donald Trump needs to go someplace to to save his campaign. Uh, you know, we we've talked a lot about weeks where it seems like everything is falling apart. We now are past the final debate. Uh, Hillary Clinton, the clear winner of debate season, and Republicans are in meltdown mode right now. You're seeing recriminations, you're seeing accusations, and you're seeing the almost surreal. Uh, concept floated by Donald Trump, he may not even respect the results of this election. And that is just prompting a Republican freakout. Yeah, and it's, you know, three debates, four if you include the VP debate, but three presidential debates. And I think you can make a convincing case that Donald Trump not only lost all three debates, but that he lost the post-debate spin. He lost the post-game. Uh, After each debate, there was an ensuing controversy uh, where he continued to kind of implode. In this case, you know, you had the kind of dual uh, situation of how he handled the the whole question of whether or not he would accept the results if he lost. And the the, the mess up at the uh, the Al Smith dinner where, I mean, I've been covering that Al Smith dinner since I was a cub reporter in New York City for the New York Post. I've never seen somebody actually get booed. The way Donald Trump got booed at the Al Smith Center. He misread the room, and I think he has misread the mood of, of so many audiences along the way. You're right, John. I mean, the, these debates, you just go back three weeks and it, when, when the debate season was starting, and uh, he was within the margin of error in a bunch of polls. Uh, and he even started out strong at that first debate. But, but since that first 20 minutes of the first debate, it has been an unmitigated disaster for Donald Trump and not even something that they can adequately spin. Uh, and, and now you see Donald Trump closing out this campaign in open warfare with his own party, uh, barely on speaking terms with the major party figures. Paul Ryan's given up on him. John McCain unendorsed. Uh, you've got Senate candidates. Uh, you just did a couple of debates in North Carolina and in Florida. And, you know, Marco Rubio, John, was he, he almost almost sounded like the Democrat in his condemnation of Donald Trump. He could not try to get further away faster, even though he's still technically endorsing Donald Trump. He has just roiled this Republican Party and all of the fissures, all of the splits that we've seen animate the party over the last year and a half coming home to roost right now in what's looking like a potentially disastrous election for Republicans. Rubio actually at one point during the debate said that he was the only one on the debate stage that ran against Donald Trump, that voted against Donald Trump. He said Donald Trump wasn't his first choice for president, and he said he wasn't his 10th choice for president. (laughs) But Rubio's in a very awkward situation, even as he is condemning Trump. He, of course, has not revoked his endorsement. And I got the sense, I mean, what was your read on that race? He not only said that Trump should stop saying the election is rigged. He said that, you know, the election is not rigged. Did anybody, you need to respect the results. That's a pillar of American democracy. And then the day after the debate, he told us that the WikiLeaks emails should be off limits because they are essentially stolen property and an effort by a hostile foreign government to interfere with an American election. You know, the Russians interfering with our elections. 
I mean, is, is Rubio worried about his own race? No, oh, he has to be. He has to be. And, and, and Republican strategists across the board are worried about losing control of the Senate. And, and how do you actually overcome the kind of margins you might be looking at with Donald Trump? We're seeing, you know, in our latest ratings, we're seeing the states begin to just flip over and over again. Everything is tipping in the same direction. And you even have, John, the you know the extraordinary thing now of of the Clinton campaign expanding in some of the reddest states imaginable. Georgia, Arizona, they're even spending money in Texas. Utah could go third party. This is the worst case scenario, John. This is the break glass in case of emergency, but I don't think they have a plan. So we have a new poll that came this morning, and I almost fell out of my chair when I when I saw it. Uh, new poll in the state of Georgia that showed the race statistically tied. Uh, Trump up to well within the margin of error. I mean, if if Georgia is really in play, and I'm not yet convinced that it is, but that is clearly an indicator uh, that it's moving that way. You know, we're we're looking at not just a, a potential loss for for the Republican nominee, but but a but a blowout. Yeah, then you saw you saw Steve Schmidt, the former uh, 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 Cheney and, uh, and and McCain Palin advisor, saying we could be talking about 400 electoral votes. I don't know that we're there yet, but we're starting to see things slip throughout, and, and the panic that has gripped Washington and beyond right now over Trump. And, and John, I, you know, people have been asking me, and I throw the question to you. What could change the dynamic still? We have been expecting the unexpected and seeing the unexpected so many times. Can, can you imagine something coming out that changes this trajectory now that we're on the backside of these debates? Well, I still read newspapers. I don't know if you what? do this. What? Uh, but, what? yeah, it, it's actual it's actual newsprint. I actually um, I used to work for a brought one with me here in the car. I'm not driving, by the way. I should put this clear. Arlette signs are... Uh, one of the true talents in the uh, ABC uh, editorial team is, is driving um, right now. But uh, but the, the, the upper uh, right hand, you know, above the fold, these are terms we used to use when we used to read newspapers. Um, there's the story about um, about Trump's refusal to honor the outcome of, of the election or say he will. But the subhead is so ominous. Private fears of a looming landslide. So Schmidt is saying it publicly. Schmidt's been a, a critic of Trump all along. But you start hearing, even among those that are solidly still on the Trump train and very vested in the results of that race, uh, expressing concerns that we could be uh, seeing not just a, a loss but a, but a landslide. In terms of what can change it, you know, we, we, we've, we've run through the debates, so there's no more major debate moment that can change here. I think Trump had his last big chance in terms of what's actually embedded in the calendar to change it. Uh, there could be outside forces uh, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that work out for him. But the problem is, as you well know, and we've talked about this, Rick, is that people are voting. Yeah. People are voting. These, right. these votes are being banked now by the Clinton campaign. The lead is, is, is becoming, you know, we're, we're starting to see actual returns. That's right. And and with every passing day, it, it becomes clear that Trump himself is preparing for the aftermath. And the aftermath isn't one of a transition team. Those aren't even the questions anymore. I, when he's talking about the system being rigged and not potentially accepting the results, whatever happens, he's setting himself up for the next thing. You saw even in the last debate, it seemed like Trump TV 
uh, made its big splash. And they put out a press release afterwards saying this isn't even about a campaign. It's about a movement. Well, it is a campaign for Donald Trump and so many Republicans just uh, two and a half weeks away. It's just not a winning campaign. Uh, And now it sets up to me, John, an interesting question for Hillary Clinton, how you play out the rest of this string. You don't want to get overconfident. You don't want to get cocky. But she's on a trajectory right now to win. Do you change your message a little bit knowing that on November 9th, you're very, very likely to be the president-elect and that 40, 50 million people will have voted against you and don't like you. Do you change your tone to, to start thinking about how you will govern and how you will heal? Or do you say, I got to win this thing, I got to put it away, and you can't let up? She has a significant percentage of this country that not only opposes her and disagrees with her on the issues and doesn't like her, but who thinks that she should be in jail. Right. <laughs> or worse. Thinks, or worse. Thinks she should be imprisoned. So she faces a monumental task on how to deal with that. Uh, I was talking out at the debate with a, uh, a prominent Clinton supporter, somebody very much working on her behalf, who said that maybe the worst case for Hillary, assuming she wins, the worst, the worst case, you know, would be losing, obviously, but but aside from that winning, the the, the, the the second worst case scenario would be that if she wins, she wins the Senate, and she narrowly wins the House. Then suddenly, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the left, the expectations will be set, the way the expectation was set for the right after the 2010, you know, uh, midterm victories. She will have very little effective control because it would be such a narrow uh, margin in the House, and um, she would have to be the un- you know she she wouldn't be able to do that where she reaches out and has to unite the country because the left would be demanding you know I mean suddenly the the, the power in the in the Congress would be very much in the hands of the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders of the world. I think they would take that worst case scenario, John. But it is yeah. intriguing one for how, for how you govern. I, I, you know, the, the other I think scenario. They would rather, I, I think they, I think they would. I think that honestly, if you put truth serum in them, that you know, having a Paul Ryan with a with, with a narrow majority. Um, but here's the, to, yeah. Here's the problem with that, John. Is that do you even have a dance partner if Paul Ryan is the Speaker of the House with a five or ten seat majority? Do you have someone that can effectively control? The, the the branch of government at all. Let's say we've got a 50-50 Senate with Democratic control or 51-49 even with uh, with the Democrats in control. And you have Paul Ryan with a narrower margin than he has now. The House is is almost impossible to govern now. And that's with that, that's with a 40 seat majority. Now, imagine if it's if it's slim. I, I don't know that Paul Ryan can survive that a and that he can lead through it. I, this is it sets up a lot of worrisome signs for governing, even taking the Trump factor aside and the Trump energy aside. You start talking about how you line this up and what you can actually get done. It's really hard to get optimistic. And just does Ryan himself survive as speaker? There's already buzz. You see Sean Hannity talking about it. Um, it was Congressman Mark Meadows from North Carolina says there's talk about uh, how he, he sold out the movement. Uh, he, he, look, who else could possibly do that job? That's why Ryan did it in the first place. Uh, but I think if, if, if the Republicans limp through this, you're going to have the warring factions that say, 
You should have done more to help the top of the ticket. You sabotaged yourself. You weren't committed to principles. You empowered President Hillary Clinton. It is not going to be easy. And we've seen Republicans you know, do the circular firing squad thing after elections before. It's very easy to envision it happening again. And the argument that will animate 2020 is going to get pushed up through a, a, a race for House Speaker. It is going to be an ugly aftermath. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then the battle to remake the Republican Party and, you know, who, who are the who are the major figures there? Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, who's who's on your short list? Well, I think I think you start with Mike Pence, uh, who's going to try to navigate all of this. You're going to go through Mike, uh, John Kasich, who probably has the most separation between himself and Trump among the people that ran already. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. I know Rubio told you at the debate that uh, he's going to run that full Senate term, God willing, but God might have other plans and, and he could be back in the mix. I, I think you have to consider, I know this is going to sound wacky, John. Talk about Evan McMullen, okay? Let's If he wins Utah, he will have walked away with electoral votes. Ross Perot didn't do that. John Anderson didn't do that. Uh, heck, Gary Johnson isn't going to get close to that. I, I don't know how you would exclude him as someone who said, look, I, I stood up in addition to Ben Sass and maybe Cory Gardner and some other fresh faces. You'll have this guy who took, took the fight directly to Donald Trump and took a principled stand for conservatism. So you asked what Hillary Clinton does in these final days and how she how she navigates you know, there, there are kind of two things that she can do. One is, the first thing is they absolutely have to make sure that they, they have to guard against overconfidence. That's their biggest fear, that people don't turn out to vote because they think it's over. So, yes, you have to still continue to charge through the finish line. But then, the, then there's the question is, if you truly feel that the wind is at your back, do you expand the map? Do you try to compete in places like Georgia and Arizona or even Texas, South Carolina gets mentioned? Do you, do you dabble in, uh, in in Utah? Or do you try to solidify your uh, down-ballot races? Do you, do you try to, you know, win the, you know, those key Senate races? Do you start to divert resources? And we've already started to see that. Priorities USA, the Clinton Super PAC, uh, has, has diverted some of its uh, spending to the key Senate races. Uh, I think that Michelle Obama campaigning in Arizona was not just about, uh, you know, trying to put Arizona in play for Hillary Clinton, but it was about, you know, trying to uh, to, to, to see if they can defeat uh, John McCain out there. And Obama campaigning in Florida dedicated a good chunk of his speech to Marco Rubio. Yeah, I mean, sure he did. was, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, Hillary's got a pretty solid lead right now in recent polls in Florida, but. You know, they would sure like to win that Senate seat. And this is how the chess gets three-dimensional, is that you've got a couple of Senate races in places like Missouri and Indiana. President Obama, Hillary Clinton's not going to win either of those states. She's not going to come close. And in fact, her presence there might actually hurt this, the Democratic candidates. But you can send some money there. Right. And you can see some other resources there. You can send some surrogates there. That's what you might deploy. Meanwhile, you're able to go on offense. And, and I, I think the Clinton team... There's a sense, I don't want to say they, they feel like they can get greedy, but they feel like they can establish something bigger out of this election if the if the vote is more decisive. If they carry a state like an Arizona or a Georgia, get close in a Texas and a South Carolina, then you start to be able to make a plausible case for a mandate. Because Hillary Clinton's problem always, always has been, is she going to be remembered as the person who just wasn't Trump at this moment? Or are people voting for something affirmative? She chose not to really go in that direction at the debate. She kept the pressure on Trump. Now we're beyond that. She has two and a half weeks to play with. And where they put those resources could determine that aftermath. 
Now, when you talk to the Clinton folks, um, they, they will tell you that they are convinced that Trump's not going to concede. I mean, no matter how big a blowout it is, that, 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 that that's going to be an issue. I'm not so convinced of that. You saw what he said in the debate, and that was, you know, extraordinary moment, uh, being un, un, unwilling to commit to uh, respecting the results of the election. But when he went out, you know, the next day and he did his, I absolutely will respect the results of this great historic election if I win. If you listen to what he said right after that, I mean, he's making it clear that, that all he's saying is that if there is, if, 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 you know, if it is a really close race, if there are, you know, issues of irregularities, then he reserves his right to challenge. But he's not saying that he, I mean, he's truly not saying that he's not going to accept Results. Is he? Uh, uh, you know, he, he, he knows what the right, quote-unquote, right answer is to this, and he's not giving it directly, so it makes you suspicious. But I, I, I don't know how you, you stick around a day after, two days after, three days after. He loves to be unpredictable. Sure, but, but I, I, I think you're right. I, I, I think that this will end up still being, and this is you know, a hopeful note here, this will be a clean ending, and that we will have the, the great American tradition of that peaceful transfer of power. Uh, you know, then, and, then, and then the messy stuff begins again. Uh, immediately, and then John, I think we have on the line someone who's been given a lot of thought to the messy stuff. He's experienced the messy stuff on the inside, and now given a lot of thought to what's next for the Republican Party. Uh, are you talking about the one and the only, the true Michael Steele, the one without an E on the end of his name? That's right, the one and only Michael Steele, without, the Republican Michael Steele without the E. In the, I think we are talking about him, John. We're, we're, uh, Michael Steele, you on the line? Yes, sir. Okay, we are joined now by Michael Steele, uh, 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 a good friend of, of, of ours going back a long time. He is not the former uh, Republican Party chairman. This is, this is the man that we got to know um, uh, as, a, uh, as a top lieutenant for Speaker of the House John Boehner and, and, and then on the uh, Jeb Bush campaign. Michael, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. So you wrote a, uh, an article that caught our eye in Time Magazine, I believe, uh, about what happens to the Republican Party the day after. And we've, we've heard people say this will be like, you know, Berlin in 1945, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the Republican Party, you know, the, what's left of the party will have to work its way through the wreckage and try to rebuild. Um, what, 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 what's your sense? No, I'm I'm actually fairly optimistic in the in the medium term. I think that the way to properly understand Donald Trump is not really as a Republican. He's a third party populist candidate uh, who has, in the vein of Ross Perot or George Wallace, who captured the nomination of the Republican Party because of a five car, six car pileup in the establishment lane. He essentially was able to hijack the party, and I think his influence in the long term will be fairly limited. And with one important caveat to that, that the party is going to have to spend a lot of time and a lot of effort learning how to craft policies and communicate policies that appeal to non-college educated um, working Americans. What happens to Ryan if he comes back and the Republicans have lost, you know, 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 seats? uh, And he's looking at, at, at at a majority, you know, at a narrow majority. Um, maybe even maybe even narrower than the majority that uh, that, that Boehner dealt with in the, you know after 2010. Yeah, I mean, I think that one. I think everyone understands that if there are losses uh, for House Republicans, or I think there will be some, obviously, that that's uh, not on Ryan. That's a result of 
uh, a good year for the Democratic Party, a year when the Democratic Party is organized in a way that, that we are not. I think everyone knows that Speaker Ryan has done everything possible, one, on the, the fundraising front, two, on the political front, doing events for members, and three, developing the, the Better Way agenda, which gives members an opportunity to be for something that is not Trump. But wait, Michael, allows I mean, them the opportunity to talk about politics. But wait, Michael, everything possible. He's he's saying explicitly he's giving up on the top of the ticket. Won't he face some backlash on that? We're already hearing rumblings around that. Sean Hannity says uh, we have to start talking about that. That, that there's going to be blowback around the top of the ticket if in that scenario. I don't know that he's going to if everyone's going to be willing to give him a pass on that. Well, there's been a group of disaffected members as long as we've had the majority and those with longer memories. I think I, I honestly think you can trace a direct line from the no votes on Medicare Part D to what's currently called the Freedom Caucus. At the same time, Sean Hannity's talking about running for speaker Louis Gilmert, a congressman from Texas who ran for speaker a few years ago and got three votes, one of them from himself. I think that well, there's, look, I think even the people who aren't happy with where he is on the nominee believe that Paul Ryan is the best choice and in some ways the only choice uh, to be Speaker of the House right now. And, you know, somebody's got to get to 218 votes. And I think that I think he's going to be able to do it because his members know that he's done everything he can to help them, whether they're in a district that is suburban, very well-educated, where Trump is doing badly, uh, or in a district where the nominee is going to do very well. Okay, now more broadly than Ryan, though, let me play out this scenario for you. Trump loses. He loses big. You lose the Senate. You lose some seats in the House. What is... What's this? What's this to prevent all of this from repeating itself in the run-up to 2020? You're going to have conservatives who will say Trump was a one-off. Forget about it. Ted Cruz and that wing will be back. You'll have people on the more moderate side, say John Kasich in, in this camp, you'll, saying, "Look, the, the the problem here is we didn't go enough to the center." And then you're going to have a whole range of new faces. You're going to talk about the Ben Sasses and the Evan McMullins and and, and and a new generation that's coming in. You could end up with another huge field with still that the Trump force out there, and, and you've seen the danger of trying to co-opt it. What's to, what's to say that it's not going to be just as bad next time around for Republicans? Well, I think that absent Trump, we would have had a very exciting and interesting primary that would have resulted in a candidate who could easily beat Secretary Clinton. Donald Trump is a unique figure. His celebrity, the free publicity, the image that he's cultivated over decades can't be repeated by someone else. And in terms of Trump himself, a big part of that image is winning. And if he loses a very winnable election to Hillary Clinton, I don't care if he blames orcs or unicorns or moderate Republicans or never Trump activists on Twitter. I don't care. He will have lost a very winnable presidential election and set this country back in a dangerous way. So you think okay, it so disappears? You think that force disappears? You think that you're able I, to just I, disappear it? I think that it doesn't disappear, but his supporters... I mean, first of all, remember that in a general election, there's a great deal of sort of tribal support. Republicans who can't imagine the possibility of voting for Secretary Clinton, or any Democrat, really, but particularly Secretary Clinton, um, who are with Trump because he's the nominee more than because they are really tied to Donald Trump. And then there are the real hardcore Donald Trump people, some of which we'll never get, some of which we don't want. 
We don't need the racists, the anti-Semites, um, the, the, the fringes of this, uh, this strange coalition. But there are also a large number of people who feel disenfranchised, disaffected with the way Washington is currently working, who are part of that huge majority in this country right now who believe that we're on the wrong, on the wrong track. And those voters are people that a reform-minded, conservative Republican candidate can definitely get, can definitely count on in 2020. Where, where do you think the race is right now? Do you think it's over? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're looking at, I, I've never seen lists of um, bubble states or target states that include places like Utah or Democrats or Georgia or Arizona. I mean, this is, you know, I maybe Trump is able to win Ohio, but it's hard to put together any kind of, it's hard to put together an electoral college scenario that isn't laughable that results in his victory. And the Senate? Not my area of expertise. I would say 50-50 right now. I think that in, you know, for example, in my home state of North Carolina, I do think that Secretary Clinton will win the state. In the governor's race, probably give the edge to Roy Cooper, the Democrat. But I think that uh, Senator, Senator Burr will be fine. The Republican senator will, uh, will be returned. So your old boss, Speaker Boehner, what's he thinking right now? Is he thinking I got out just in time? Thank, thank goodness the Pope came and <laughs> I got to cap it all and get out before the crazy, or is, is he is he thinking you know that this is this is this is this is really serious? Is there a role for him in crafting a future for the Republican Party? I don't think he will choose to play a huge role um, because I think I think he's very much of the of the mind that it's it's time for a new generation of leaders. And that's why he was, you know, proud to turn over the, the speakership to, uh, to Speaker Ryan, who kind of embodies that, you know, 40 something generation of rising Republican leaders. And that's something that, and I think this is an important point the Democrats don't have secretary Clinton's unique strengths have obscured the fact that uh, down ballot Democrats have been utterly decimated in the Obama era. And there is not a bench of statewide office holders for them to build on in the future. All right, Michael Steele, appreciate you joining us. An interesting, provocative uh, op-ed that you're offering. And uh, good luck uh, picking up the pieces. It's going to be quite a task. Thanks so much. So, Rick, what, what, what truly is, I mean, don't forget Boehner is, is, was one of those uh, establishment types who came around to, 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 to Trump early on. Yeah, relatively yeah. early on yeah i mean and that was that, that that actually his his dilemma is is emblematic of the broader one is that you know he hated ted cruz so much that he was on board for for trump when he was the only only alternative and that's the problem is that uh, i've heard from a number of people that say well you know the republican establishment is going to take back the party next time around how uh, using what lever that they didn't use this past time you know i i, I you can see a scenario where you have a field of 10 or 12 again and I don't know how that winnows itself to have, well, this is our, this is our one choice. And you're playing with people in, in some of the Trump supporters who, if, if they feel like they're wrong by the process, they're going to take their ball and go home and go to a third party. You do, Michael's, Michael Steele is right in saying you don't, there, there's a segment here of people that you don't want and you don't need. But the Trump base is bigger than that. It's not just a whole, a whole bunch of xenophobes and racists. It is a, a, a disaffected uh, white working class that feels like the party's gotten away from them, and they've been excited by Make America Great Again. That is the true part of the, the, that's a movement. And they were 
ba- frankly bored by the field that they saw last time. And and I think it's I think it's wishful thinking to think that there won't be someone to try to emerge as the heir to the Trump legacy. Uh, and and you know that 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 Trumpism may have failed with Trump, but it's not going to disappear. And then there's the question which needs to be asked, which is what the party stands for, because it seems to me that the party that, that emerged with Ronald Reagan, the kind of Adam Smith, laissez-faire, small government, uh, you know, uh, with the exception of strong defense and, you know, aggressive internationalism, uh, the party of free trade, uh, the party of, uh, of, of, of immigration reform, that party, is that party still alive? Long I, mean, is, is, I mean, I know, I know, I know Paul Ryan stands for that. It's but long gone. that is it, not the issue set. Yeah, it's long gone. I mean, I, I think, you know, you could try to build it back, but it's going to have to look vastly different. And uh, you, you raised the question of what it means to be a Republican. And I think one of the, the big mistakes is in the Republican thinking this time was that the party could dictate what it meant to be Republican when the party is actually made up of voters. And voters said something and they said something powerful and strong here. And they said it in, in, even though every voice that we thought mattered in Republican politics, whether that's former nominees, former presidents, uh, any establishment figures from the foreign policy, the economic world, uh, almost every sitting United States senator, almost every former United States senator, governors, they were all saying, don't go with this guy, don't the go with this guy. The former nominees, the, the, the intellectual base of the party, the, the, the National Review. The, the thought leaders, too, right, uh, the media folks. I mean, uh, the, they, they the all said standard, don't do it. The Wall Street Journal editorial page, the whole thing. I mean, you know. That's right. And, and Trump, Trump took over all of that, and that's why two weeks out, they're looking down the barrel of a disaster. Yep, yep. Well, that is on that note, Rick. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, make sure that Arlette is still going in the right direction. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, it, it, doing this, I've I've taken over the GPS. Uh, we are definitely somewhere in Pennsylvania. That's it's encouraging. And I'm gonna uh, I will report back to you. Uh, you know how it's looking, how it's looking out here. But uh, thank you for listening to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. You can, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes, write us a review, uh, and listen to us next week. We'll be back. We only have a couple more weeks of this stuff, right? Almost, almost over. Drive safe, John. And, of course, you can find all the ABC News podcasts going over to abcnewspodcast.com. You can find John on Twitter at John Carl. I'm at Rick Klein. Thanks for listening.